0: You're listening to Growing Matters, the podcast dedicated to providing you with all the information and research you need to improve your farm and business.
1: Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the Hort Innovation Podcast, Growing Matters. I'm your host, Farah. Today, we're busting the myths that surround pollination. With me in the studio, I have Professor James Cook from Western Sydney University, and the Hort Innovation Research and Development Manager for Pollination, Ashley Zamek. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having us.
0: Hi, nice to be here.
1: Ashley, James, we hear a lot of talk in the media about the decline of honeybees and how devastating this is for horticultural crops that require pollination. Some alarmist media stories have indicated a global food shortage if honeybee numbers continue to decrease. Can you help us to distinguish fact from fiction? Are we, in fact, in the midst of a pollination crisis?
2: Thanks, Farah. I mean, there are some real threats to honeybees, and that's really important to know and understand because the future of pollination is integral to horticulture. But what I think is probably highlighting this at the moment is general public interest, which is great. We want the public on board, but with a lot of public attention means a lot of media stories and a lot of panic.
0: Yes, I'd like to sort of follow up on what Ashley says there in that there's a great deal of concern about declines in honeybees, particularly in other parts of the world, But what it's also making us realise is the real importance of a range of different pollinators, so native bees and other insects, and the importance of managing landscapes and biodiversity.
1: So what are some of the threats facing honeybees?
2: Well, I think probably the one that everyone's heard about is varroa mite. And varroa mite is a serious pest of honeybees. It's found all across the world, and Australia is probably the biggest landmass at the moment that doesn't have varroa mite. Now, varroa mite is similar to like a tick. It lives on the honeybee through different life stages and requires the honeybee to uh, breed. So that's why it's such a bad pest, because it's entirely dependent on honeybee for their life cycle. Now, voromite is a serious threat, but there are other pests and diseases that we deal with now in Australia that also cause harm. Things like American fowl brew, uh, virus, virus, wing virus. These are things that we are dealing with right now that growers and aprons are concerned with.
1: So do these uh, threats have the same parasitic relationship to honeybees as varroa mite?
2: No, those aren't parasites, but there are other pests and diseases. Just like any other livestock industry, we have some endemic diseases and some exotic threats that we don't want to have on land.
1: And James, from the projects you've worked on, have you discovered any other risks or threats facing Australia's honeybee population?
0: So another problem with honeybees is that we need them for crop pollination and at certain times of year... There may be mass flowering of crops which provide them with resources but the bees also very much need to have floral resources the whole year round so honeybees in particular the colonies keep going all year round and they need to forage for nectar and for pollen so it's very important that there are food plants for them in the landscape and this is often limiting in intensive agriculture or where there's been a, a lot of recent building around cities so we're really the The nutrition of honeybees is another big factor.
1: So what are some of the things we're doing to address nutrition in honeybees?
0: Okay, so a couple of the things we're looking at are um, planting extra floral resources on some of the most intensive orchards, for example, in the situation of almonds, and, and also looking at how climate change might affect the amount and the quality of food that plants provide for bees. So we've got research in both of those areas.
1: Great. Thanks, James. Ashley, if varroa mite arrives in Australia, will all the honeybees die?
2: If varroa mite arrives in Australia and becomes established, it'll change the face of the Australian honeybee keeping industry. And this will be because um, varroa mite will be a pest that needs to be managed throughout the whole life cycle of the bee, which will increase the cost of beekeeping. Now beekeepers who provide services to growers will need to pass on that cost. So growers will be facing a bigger bottom line in terms of pollination. Now, on the flip side, there are a lot of growers out there who get free pollination, and that's from our natural feral honeybee population that lives in the wild. What varroa mite will do is it will kill those feral honeybees through disease. So growers who have never before had to pay for pollination will now face that cost, which will be quite a big impact.
1: How are they going to kill feral honeybees?
2: So what varroa mite does is that it weakens the honeybee to an extent where it's open to all types of pests and diseases. So things that they could probably fight off before they Can't fight off anymore. So the whole colony can die and collapse quite quickly.
1: So basically, it destroys their immunity.
2: Exactly. It feeds off their hemolyph, which is their blood, and makes them weak and unable to fight diseases. Sorry, James, do you have anything to contribute to that?
0: Yes, yeah, just sort of carrying on from that. The, um, the Varroa mite is, is strongly linked to one particularly nasty virus called deformed wing virus, which is very bad for honeybees. Um, and that, along with the other stresses, Um, sort of combines together. And in all other countries where the, when the varroa mite's been introduced, it's led to really dramatic declines in the um, wild populations of feral honeybees.
2: Yeah, exactly. And also what varroa mite does is helps the spread of disease. So varroa mites will be on the bee, that bee will be foraging on a flower, the varroa mite drops off, a new bee from a different colony comes that flower, that varroa mite hitches a ride into that new hive and spreads all those lovely diseases.
1: Wow. So if established, it will have quite a devastating effect.
2: Yes. And that's why we take it really seriously. So in Australia, we have a strong biosecurity program, which means that every port of entry in Australia where ships and planes come in, we are making sure that bees do not come in via that method. And that's through sentinel hives, which are kind of like empty hives that we leave at ports. And so any bee that's flying off a ship really wants to find a home quite quickly and they'll enter those hives. And some of those hives have uh, robotic doors, which kind of lock the bee inside. So once the bee's in, we know it's in there. We can go check it out, find out A, what type of bee it is, and B, if it has any diseases. And that gives us an indication if anything's coming onshore. Are those bees then released? No, they are definitely killed. James?
0: So there's, one, there's only one good thing, I think, about Varroa mite, and that's the fact that it's highly specific to honeybees. So while it's really, really bad news for the honeybees, it isn't a threat to other kinds of bees. There so are various native bees, or to butterflies, or beetles, and flies, and so on. So a very nasty parasite, but its its direct effects are only on honeybees, as Ashley mentioned. The only the indirect way they could affect other insects would be to increase the prevalence of viruses um, in in the environment in general. Uh, but generally speaking, that the, the dramatic effect would only be for honeybees.
1: So at the moment, we're talking about hypotheticals, but what is the likelihood that this pest will arrive on Australian shores?
0: Well, it's already arrived a few times. So in the last, th- I think, three years, there's been incursions in Townsville and Melbourne on, with hives on ships that had the mites, but the biosecurity um, system has been really good and picked it up and dealt with those situations.
2: Yes, and James has really highlighted why the biosecurity program is important. If you think about how many ships and how many planes arrive in Australia daily, those are just opportunities for pests and diseases to come into Australia. So although varroa mite has entered Australia, and can I just point out, it's not varroa destructor, which is the really bad one. It's varroa jacobsoni, a close cousin, who also we don't want. Um, The sooner we know about it, the sooner we can move to an eradication, which means we can ensure that it doesn't go any further than those ports of entry. If we didn't have the biosecurity program, we would most definitely have varroa mite and rural destructor on our land.
1: Can you outline
2: for our listeners what this biosecurity program entails? It's called the National Bee Pest Surveillance Program, and it's an involvement of every state and territory in Australia to ensure that no bee exotic pests and diseases come on land. And so it involves bee biosecurity officers, it involves hobby beekeepers, and we all work together to ensure that we are surveying and taking samples as much as often to ensure we don't have anything exotic on land. It's a massive program. It's the first of its kind in the world. It's been running for a long time and it's probably the reason that we have such a good bee population at the current moment.
1: James, you are the lead researcher on two projects looking at alternative pollinators to protect the Australian horticultural industry. Can you explain those to us?
0: Yes, so the the first project is looking um, fairly holistically at the um, pollinators which are providing services at the moment uh, in field situations, in orchards and on farms and what we're doing there is, is a range of things. We're identifying which are the actual insects that visit the, the crop when it's in flower, which, which of those are carrying the right kind of pollen and are able to effectively pollinate the, the crop flowers. Um, and in most situations, that's not one insect. It's not just, just the honeybee or just a certain fly. It's usually a group of insects, and you try and find out which are the more important ones there. Alongside that we're trying to understand how those pollinator populations persist in the landscape throughout the year. So normally the crop will only flower for a few weeks and the rest of the year the bees have to live there and they have to feed. So we're looking at what kind of other flowering plants both on the farm and around it are being used by the insects as their food sources. Those food sources are very important. So we're doing some sort of experiments back at the ranch which is back at the campus, where we are taking some of those plants and looking under climate change conditions. So we heat them up or we subject them to droughts and see how that influences their nectar and pollen production, that that kind of thing. So trying to get a bit of a look at climate change futures. And then we're also looking at the diseases that the bees and other pollinators have on the farms. So if you think of an apple farm, which is one of the contexts we're looking at quite a lot, You have plenty of honeybees on the flowers, but you also have a range of native bees and some hoverflies coming to visit. So do all these insects actually share diseases amongst them which are transmitted via the flowers? And we're doing work on that to see to what extent the honeybee viruses we already know about, to what extent are those actually crossing over and shared with native insects as well. Uh, So those are the main things of the, the first project.
1: So what are some of the key findings that have already been established?
0: Okay, so um, we're just starting out, in fact, we're in the middle of our third season looking at apple and cherry pollination in New South Wales. One of the things we found there is there's real high variation in what's pollinating the crop from year to year. So most of the farmers do pay to have um, honeybee hives on their orchards and the honeybees are playing a big role. In some places, honeybees are really playing the major role. So there can be like over 90% of the insects on the flowers. But in some situations, like in the Blue Mountains in Bilpin, we've found that sometimes the native stingless bees are outnumbering the honeybees by up to three times. And not only that, but on the same farm, you find a big difference year to year, and even day to day, depending on the weather.
2: And another really interesting finding, James, is that it's not just about the crop you have, it's about where you are. So it's a crop question and a region question. And I think growers never had that information before, that that could be a big matrix that they need to understand better.
1: So is there a difference between um, what insect is pollinating their crops depending on the region? Is that what we're finding here?
0: Yes. So that's the that's the case. But it, in some cases, it can be an absolute thing. So stingless bees are actually they're actually the major focus of our second project which i'll talk about later but stingless bees are only found in some parts of the country where they're present they seem to be playing quite a big role on apple orchards but there are most of the apple growing areas are outside the range of that that kind of bee so when you go outside the range of that kind of bee obviously you don't find it um, but there are a lot of other solitary native bees which nest in Um, stems, uh, stems of plants or in holes in the ground. And many of the, many different species will visit apples. Um, But again, that varies considerably between different places. So the native reed bee, which nests in things like tree fern fronds when they fall, um, where that's present, it can be quite significant. But then there are apples grown in places where you don't find those bees.
2: Yeah, and I think what people need to keep in mind is the reason honeybees are found so much everywhere is that we bring them in. They're not natively there usually, or the feral population can be quite large. But we are altering the dynamics of the environment by bringing honeybees in. So it's something to keep in mind.
1: So we understand that European honeybees are not the only pollinators. What other bees are pollinating our crops?
0: So another really important group, probably the the next most important group, is the stingless bees, and Australia actually has 11 species of stingless bees, and they're mostly found in the more tropical and subtropical areas, and particularly more um, humid areas. So the you know, Queensland's very good for them, and North northeast New South Wales, and up around Darwin as well. Um, so that's a really important group. And we've just done some surveys on mango growing up in Darwin and Catherine. And finding up there that the main visitors to the mango flowers were actually uh stingless bees and we got three different species up there uh but also flies so flies can be very important with some of our tree crops and again it's as ashley was saying it's it's a bit of an interaction between the kind of crop so and the kind of flower it has when it's flowering and which region you are in so if you take things like avocados and mangoes we grow them very widely in australia And depending on where you go, exactly who's doing the the job of pollinating can vary quite a lot.
1: So how do you track what species are pollinating which crops?
0: Basically, it's a case of going out into the orchards at the right time, um, making observations directly. You can recognise, well, a trained entomologist can recognise directly some of the insects um, just visually. Uh, Otherwise, we recognise them as well as we can and we catch representatives of the different types, bring them back identify exactly what they are sometimes that requires going to experts in the museum for example if it's not a very well-known insect but it's it's a lot of work in the field and so doing surveys of mangoes recently we had a team of people who spent six weeks basically going out most days and seeing which insects were pollinating catching insects taking the pollen off them to identify if it was crop pollen or other pollen
1: so it sounds like quite a manual process
0: so it, it's quite a lot of field work, um but it gets you a lot of a lot of information.
1: James, you mentioned stingless bees and flies. How are alternative pollinators supporting Australian crops?
0: So the big thing about stingless bees is in many ways they're like honeybees, in that they have a a big colony, they have a queen who produces hundreds or thousands of of working bees, and you can keep them in a hive, so a box, a bit like the honeybee box, but a little bit smaller. Most of the things you would do with honeybees, you can do with stingless bees. They do produce less honey, but also a big advantage is if they don't sting, as the name suggests. So, already they're being used quite a lot by macadamia farmers. So, they are, macadamia is our only endemic Australian plant that is a major crop. So, all the other ones have been brought from elsewhere in the world. And they've probably always been pollinated by stingless bees back through time and stingless bees are very good pollinators so quite a few farmers will already bring hives of stingless bees to onto their orchards to increase the numbers and they work very well in that situation what we're now looking at is can we take that model and extend it to other crops so we're looking at other tree crops such as mango and avocado and lychee and assessing whether stingless bees will visit them and how good are they and the signs are you know really promising particularly with things like mango also uh stingless bees, pot, because you can keep them in a box, you can have big numbers um, and they don't sting, they're really interesting in terms of coming into protected cropping.
2: Yeah. So protected cropping in Australia is an industry that's really on the rise. I mean, in terms of things that you can't control, such as weather, climate change, humidity, protected cropping offers a unique growing environment where you can control more, which is great. But it also blocks out pollinators who can fly in. So looking at multiple options is really important to ensure that protected cropping aren't pollination deficient. So what role will these pollinators have moving forward?
0: So moving forwards, I think we're going to see an increasing recognition of the role of um, wild pollinators and pollinators other than honeybees. We, What our studies are showing at the moment is that these insects are already playing quite a, lo- a big role, but it's often just unrecognised. So both wild honeybees, wild bees, flies, big group, um, and some other insects, like beetles, wasps, et cetera. They are playing already important roles in, in many crops, but we're now starting to get data that clearly see, say how important they are. Um, I think in the protected cropping situation that we're going to be looking at native bees like stingless bees and quite possibly flies as well as being uh, really important, uh, particularly in those highly confined glasshouse situations.
2: We agree at Horton Innovation, which is why we have a specific fly project. Following on from James's work, we know that pollination diversity is different region to region. So now what we're looking at, uh, what flies are doing the work in different regions? Do certain flies prefer different crops? Are hairy flies better? Are hover flies better? We really want to understand what the natural pollinators are doing and perhaps how we can augment that um, honeybees aren't always in those high numbers. We bring them in. So why can't we bring in flies?
1: Are there any preliminary findings around the use of flies as pollinators?
0: So we already know that uh, from survey work in the field, so in orchards, that in some places flies seem to be the main pollinators of avocados, for example, and that in many places flies are, a lot of different flies are visiting mangoes. And some some of our latest data showed that the One particular hoverfly was really common as a visitor to mangoes. So in the field, certainly that's the case. And what we'll be doing over the next year or so is to try and actually, uh, you, you can, so flies don't live in hives in colonies like bees do. But on the other hand, you can mass rear flies. So probably the best known case is for fishermen. rearing maggots for for fishing um, and the use of flies for managing waste in fact for recycling waste and we can use those some of those same flies we maybe let let them hatch as adults and potentially use them um, as an inundation to increase pollination.
2: And growers are already really aware of what flies are doing there are anecdotal stories about growers who bring in roadkill to try and increase fly populations we're trying to think of a nicer way to do that.
1: So James has mentioned a number of projects he is working on with Hort Innovation to support pollination. Ashley, perhaps you could help us to wrap up by informing us of some projects that haven't been discussed.
2: Well, we do a lot of work in understanding field diversity. So what James is doing is very New South Wales focused. We have similar projects all up and down the East Coast and some in Western Australia. Really kind of want to understand what Australia has going on. We have the bee pest surveillance program, which I mentioned. We have stingless bees. We have flies. We actually are looking at the crops themselves as well um, in terms of nutritional value and what we can do to attract more pollinators. And then we have an upcoming project about hive management and ways to make it easier for growers and aprists to ensure on hive health when the hives come on the property and when hives leave. We believe in a multifaceted approach to try and ensure that all growers' problems are not solved, but we give them as many options as possible to make a better plan for pollination in the future.
1: Well, there you have it. I think we've busted all of the myths surrounding pollination. Um, before we wrap up, James, Ashley, do you have any key takeaways for our listeners?
0: Yeah, so just a final comment. I think that if you put together all the stuff we're talking about, what we're looking to do is, is to be able to provide information for resilient um, pollination services that don't rely too much on any one situation or one species. So that a better understanding of all the different options and how we can manage the landscape or the protected cropping environment so that we can harness these natural pollinators and, and get good pollination for crop production.
2: Exactly. And I don't think any solution is something that's going to work for every grower. You have to look at your farm, look at your area, look at what you're growing, look at your biodiversity, and from there make some really key decisions on what you plan to do in the future.
1: Well, thank you, James and Ashley, for coming in and busting the myths around bees and pollination. No, we had a great time.
0: Yes, thanks very much.
1: If you'd like more information about anything you've heard on today's show, links to the resources will be posted in the show notes.
0: Thanks for listening to Growing Matters. Don't forget to visit us over at horticulture.com.au and join our free membership. Get instant access to the very latest information available to help your farm and business grow.